Welcome to the River Fellowship Podcast. This week, Lead Pastor Daryl Anderson takes us through John 11, 45 through 54, and John 3, 22 through 30. John the Baptist offers us the perfect example of how to exalt Christ. Discover his secret in this week's message. To learn more about River Fellowship in Amarillo, Texas, go to rfamarillo.org. Before we talk about how do we exalt Christ, I want to talk first about how we do not exalt Christ. What will keep us from exalting Christ? How not to exalt Christ, if you will. And I want to pick it up here in John chapter 11. We'll pick up the story in verse 45. My translation starts with therefore. And we all know the rule of thumb. If you see a therefore, you have to see what the therefore is there for. So you look up the very few passages in front of it. Jesus has just raised Lazarus from the dead. So we've just had that encounter and that experience. So right on the heels of that, verse 45 says, Therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did put their faith in him. In other words, when Lazarus was sick, eventually died, all of their family joined, all their friends came, city people came to help grieve and mourn and encourage the family. So all these people are here and they saw that event. And because of that, they put their faith in Jesus. Verse 46, but some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Now, these are some of those little Pharisee spies that would kind of go through and let the Pharisees know what Jesus was doing, little tattletales that would kind of come and keep the Pharisees uh, clued in. So because of that, verse 47, the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. What are we accomplishing, they asked. Here is this man performing many miraculous signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Then one of them named Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, spoke up. You know nothing at all. You do not realize that it's better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. He did not say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation. And not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God to bring them together and make them one. So, from that day on, they plotted to take his life. Verse 54, therefore, we see it again. Why is that there? Because of verse 53. Because the Pharisees were plotting to take the life of Jesus, therefore, Jesus no longer moved about publicly among the Jews. Instead, he withdrew to a, na- to a region near the desert, to a village called Ephraim, where he stayed with his disciples. The key passage here for me is verse 48. For the Pharisees say, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. Then the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Now, on the surface, when we first read this, on the surface, it appears that the Pharisees are concerned about the Jewish nation, that they're concerned about the Jewish people, that they don't want the Jewish people to be erased from the face of the earth, that they have a concern for the nation. But when you keep that in context to what's going on in other passages of Scripture, I think there's a much more egocentric thing taking place here. I think the Pharisees are concerned about their place in the nation. They're concerned about their role and their place in the temple. Because religiously speaking at this day, especially Jewishly speaking, the Pharisees were the in-group. They were the cool kids. They were the elite. They were the leaders. All eyes were on them. They demanded attention. They wanted attention. They loved attention. 
the people were giving them attention. And to say it this way, the Pharisees loved the spotlight. They were in the spotlight. The people had gladly put them in the spotlight and they wanted to stay in the spotlight. It was all about them being in the spotlight. Now, if you look at Matthew 23, we see a passage here that is a proof text that they love the spotlight. In Matthew 23, Jesus spends that chapter uh, with seven woes toward the Pharisees. He's exposing the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. He's really calling them out. In verse five, this is what Jesus says about them. Everything they do is done for men to see. In other words, everything is done for the spotlight. They make their phylacteries wide and their tassels on their garments long. They love the place of honor at banquets and the most important seats in the synagogues. They love to be greeted in the marketplaces and to have them call them rabbi. The phylacteries here uh, for the Jewish men, especially during morning prayer, they would wear phylacteries. They were leather cases uh, that they would place on the forehead and the left arm. They contained portions of Deuteronomy and Exodus. And it was a sign of how important scripture was to them. Theirs were larger. They were bigger. In other words, it was an indication of how spiritual they were and how much they loved the word of God. It was just spiritual arrogance and pride to say, hey, look at me. The tassels were longer. They had prayer shawls. And on the corners of the prayer shawls, they would have these tassels hanging down that would represent God's commandments. So again, theirs were a lot longer than the other Jewish men because, hey, look at us. Look how spiritual we are. It said they enjoyed the place of honor at banquets. Back in that day, and really today, I think it's probably very similar often, the closer you sat to the host, the more important you were. So at these banquets in this day, all the Pharisees wanted to sit right next to the host to indicate we're the most important people here. They liked the most important seats in the synagogue. Evidently, in that day, there was some premier seating in the synagogue, kind of like first class, I guess, on the airplane. And so they would run to the premier seating. We still have premier seating in our churches today. It's the back row. <laughs> Nobody likes the front row, see? You have to get here really early to get the back row. <laughs> but there's also some evidence that back in that day, there was... Uh, the, cl the class of people would kind of sit together. So all the leaders and the important people would kind of sit together in the synagogue. And so the Pharisees were sure they were in that group so everybody would know how important they are. They like to be called rabbi, doctor. That was important that everyone know that they're very intelligent. Here's the point. They loved the spotlight and they wanted to stay in the spotlight. They wanted to keep in the spotlight and now they feel threatened about the spotlight because now we see verse 45, here enters Jesus. Verse 45 said, many of the Jews had seen what Jesus did and put their faith in him. What's happening? A little spotlight shift. Remember what Jesus has just done. He raised Lazarus from the dead and all these people saw that. Talk about a spotlight event. That's a spotlight event. If that's going to create some diversion of attention, that's taking place. And so now we're seeing this. So now in verse 48, that's why the Pharisees say, no, we're not going to let this happen. We're going to move the spotlight back. And so we're going to take care of Jesus so this transfer doesn't happen. Verse 54 is very interesting to me. It says, therefore, because of this plot to kill Jesus, because of their desire to be in the spotlight, it says that Jesus no longer moved about publicly among the Jews. It's interesting to me 
that physically, literally in that period of time, that the Pharisees were successful in keeping Jesus out of the spotlight temporarily. They succeeded for a while, keeping him out of the spotlight and keeping themselves in the spotlight. But we know how tragically that ended. <laughs> now, it's easy. When I read this, it's really, it's really easy for me just to get on the Pharisees and say, you guys are just a bunch of goose. And to condemn them, to judge them, say, how, how, how can you do that? But then I look at my own life. I look at my own situation, situation. I look at my own heart. And I have to realize and say, you know what? I'm no different many times than the Pharisees. Because what they did literally and physically, I can tend to do spiritually in my own heart and in my own life. And we can all be guilty of the same thing. We can desire and enjoy the applause of men. We can desire to have and to keep a place of prominence. We can have a tendency to want to build our own kingdom for our own glory. We can all have a tendency to want to be in the spotlight. So we're guilty of the same thing sometimes. So how do we not exalt Christ? We don't exalt Christ when we steal the spotlight and we try to maintain our position in the spotlight. So that's the negative example. So keep that on the side and let's look at a positive example now. Flip back, if you will, to John chapter three. And this is the story of John the Baptist. We're gonna pick it up in verse 22. And it starts by saying, after this, very similar to therefore. What he's referring to is what had taken place earlier in chapter three. And Jesus had been with Nicodemus and had that encounter with Nicodemus, talking about how you can be born again and this relationship with Jesus Christ and the need to have Jesus Christ in your heart and the center of your life, etc. So it's after that conversation, it says in verse 22, that Jesus and his disciples went out into the Judean countryside where he spent some time with them and baptized. So Jesus is over here and he's baptizing a group of people. Now John was also baptizing because there was plenty of water and the people were constantly coming to be baptized. So here's the picture. Jesus is over here. He's got a big group and he's baptizing. Then a little distance away on the other part of the water, now John is here with all of his disciples and he's baptizing a great group of people too. So in verse 25, it says an argument developed between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew over the matter of ceremonial washing. They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, well, he's baptizing and everyone's going to him. Now I'm reading something in the scripture now, but the connotation I get here is that this, this guy really didn't want to say that. that he's supportive of John. He's, he's protective of John the Baptist. So he's coming pretty timidly to John saying, John, I don't really want to say this to you, but... All of your followers are going over there. Did you know that? So John replies in verse 27, a man can receive only what is given him from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Christ, but I am sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. And that joy is mine. And it's now complete. Verse 30, he must become greater and I must become less. The greatest passage on how to exalt Christ is right here. 
He must become greater and I must become less. If you have King James, how I memorized it, he must increase and I must decrease. Now, that word must has two connotations simultaneously. One, it means it ought to be. It's supposed to be. This is the way it should be. But it also means it has to be. It's a necessity. It ought to be this way, and it has to be this way. The word increase in this connotation literally means to spread. So what Jesus is saying here is he's saying it ought to be this way. It should be this way. It's going to be this way. It must be this way. It has to be this way. What has to happen is that the name and fame of Jesus must spread. And my fame and my name must diminish and go away. The greatest example of the spotlight shift that needs to take place. Now, to get the impact of this, you have to understand who John the Baptist is. At this time, John the Baptist was the man. <laughs> Remember, his mother, Elizabeth, and Jesus' mother, Mary, were relatives. So Jesus and John were relatives. John the Baptist was born about six months before Jesus. In Luke 7, we see what Jesus himself said about John the Baptist. He said, there is no one greater than John the Baptist. Of all the men born, of all the prophets ever, there was never anyone greater than John the Baptist. We see here in verse 23 that the people were constantly coming to John the Baptist to be baptized. John the Baptist had his own disciples. He had his own followers. Verse 26, he's being called rabbi. He is a teacher at that time with his following and with his, his students and his disciples. If we were to put this in the context of today, John the Baptist had a kicking church. He had a ministry that was thriving and vibrant. He had a congregation that was packed. He was the man. When you talk about, hey, what's going on? It's John the Baptist. He was the guy. John the Baptist could have kept the spotlight because John the Baptist was in the spotlight. And he could have been just like the Pharisees. And when Jesus came on the scene, he could have said, no, I'm going to steal the spotlight too. What did John the Baptist do? He said, no, Jesus is the one in the spotlight. And I've got to get as far away from that as possible. Why did he do that? What was the motivation for John the Baptist to give over the spotlight to Jesus? I think it's two things. He knew who Jesus was. And he knew what his role was. We see that in verse 28. He says first, I'm not the Christ. <laughs> I'm not the one supposed to be in the spotlight. I'm not the Savior. I'm not the Messiah. I'm not the Christ. He is. And then he goes on to say, I am sent ahead of him. My role is to go before him. If you go to Luke 3, verses 4 and 5, we see that role. His role was to prepare the way for the Lord. His role was to draw all mankind so that they would see God's salvation through Jesus Christ. John the Baptist understood exactly who was the Messiah, and it was Jesus, and he knew exactly what his role in the whole scheme of things was, and that was simply one thing, point everybody to him to be a preparer so that when people saw Jesus, they were in a state of preparation that once they saw him, they would say, 
That's the Messiah. That's who I need. So here's the, here's the principle for us. Here's the application for us. We exalt Christ the best and the most when we acknowledge and know who he is and we understand what our role is. When we really get that, when we're willing to walk in that, that's when Jesus Christ is exalted. Now, next week, we're going to talk about more who he is. We'll talk more about Christ and who he is so, and why he needs to be exalted. Now we're talking more about how. So let me close out with this final dynamic, and that is what is our role? If we exalt Christ by knowing who he is and what our role is, okay, what's our role? Well, let me give you a couple of word pictures. The first is that we are tools. We're simply tools in the hands of God. So let me give you a couple of word pictures here. Here's a painting. It's a pretty painting. It's a beautiful painting. Now, when we see a painting, probably for none of us, our first thought, our first inclination is not, I wonder what paintbrush he used. He must have used an exquisite paintbrush. I bet that was a high dollar paintbrush, unlike this one. None of us think about that. What do we think about? We think about the painter. That guy's a great painter. We don't think about the brush or the tool that he used at all. We think about the painter. Obviously, in this illustration, we are nothing but a paintbrush. Jesus is the painter. And so when people are looking at us, at our life, at the minute, whatever's taking place that is good and glorious, none of that comes to the paintbrush. All of it funnels to the painter. This is an aside. This may be for somebody. Um, I've seen several people do this now, but a few years ago was the first time I'd seen it. Um, I think it was on a, um, one of those re reality, um, uh, like a, American's Got Talent, I think is, is the show that it was on, several years ago. But this guy came up and he's painting this painting. He had like three minutes. Had to paint this big old like four by eight sheet in like three minutes. So he's just slapping paint on stuff and he's throwing paint. He's doing all this kind of stuff. At the end of the three minutes, it's done. And when he steps back and the camera's on it, it looks like a pile of mess. It looks like a three-year-old just threw paint everywhere. All the judges are just kind of like, the whole, you, can, you, can, you can see the faces on the, on the audience. It's just like, where did this guy come from? Finally, he gets a couple of helpers and they flip this painting over right side up, and you see this beautiful, unbelievable sketching and painting that it was unbelievable. <laughs> you hear the gasp in the audience and the applause in the congregation. He had painted the entire thing upside down and then flipped it. So when it was wrong side down, it looked like a mess. But when the perspective changed, it was a beautiful painting. That may be a word for somebody this morning. You may feel like your life is a complete mess right now. Nothing's going right. You're wondering, God, what in the world are you doing? It may be a matter of perspective. If you could see what's going on from God's perspective, you would say, oh, okay. I get it. 
that's free. That may be for somebody. But we're a tool in God's hand. We're a paintbrush. He's the painter. Let me give you another visual with that. I've got two pens here. This is a really nice, expensive pen. I had a, a friend actually made this for me. It's out of wood. It's pretty heavy. Did a beautiful job. Crafted it for me. Uh, did some painting on it. Uh, he, even, he even gave me a big wooden box that he made with my name on it. You know, To me, it's priceless, but even just expensive. It's, a, it's an expensive pen. I also had this pen that I was mailed several years ago. You know, it's one of these uh, marketers, fundraiser kind of deals that, you know, they're really cheap pens. You know, you can get 5,000 for a nickel. You know, that's how expensive they are. Um, so, so I had this, but what's funny is I've used both these pens. They both write. They do the same job. They both write, you know, pretty well. If a writer grabbed either one of these pens, it wouldn't matter which one they grabbed, but if a writer grabbed one of these pens and began to write a novel or began to write a poem or began to write song lyrics and they're beautiful lyrics and then we read this novel or we read this poem, we're not going to say, which pen did you use? You're going to say, you're a gifted writer. What a beautiful story. What a beautiful song. What a, what a beautiful poem. We're the pen. He's the writer. Are we necessary? Absolutely. Are we a part of the process? Absolutely. Do we have a role? Absolutely. But we're not in the spotlight. We're just a tool. One more illustration. Not only are we tools, but we're vessels. We can consider ourselves nothing more than a vessel. We know what a vessel is. It carries stuff. And in life, there are three kind of vessels that just jump out in my mind. One's a cargo vessel. We all understand what a cargo vessel is. It's important. It carries cargo. But what's really important is what the cargo is, what the cargo vessel is carrying. What's inside the cargo vessel is, is what is, is a value. We have blood vessels. And obviously, blood vessels are very important to our life. They play a critical role, but what's really important is what's in the blood vessel. The life-giving substance is what's in the blood vessel. There are also serving vessels, like a pitcher. And you can have a glass pitcher, you can have a wooden pitcher, you can have a metal, whatever, it doesn't matter. It's a pitcher. What's important is what's inside the pitcher, and what becomes important that is when we pour what's inside of the pitcher out for the consuming of the brothers, for, 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 the, for the people. We are vessels. We have a role, but what's really important and significant for us as vessels is what is inside of us as the vessel. And that's the Spirit of God. That's the life of Christ in us. That's the life source. That is what is of value. And we fulfill our role and we see ourselves as that serving vessel and we are willing to pour out the life that is within us, the spirit of God that is within us, the life and the joy and the peace that we're experiencing and it's an overflow where we are flowing out of this vessel, the life and the spirit of God and people begin to see the life that he offers. If in our life we're impacting people, it's not because of us, it's because of the spirit of Christ flowing from us 
that impacts people. So, as the paintbrush, we exalt the painter. As the pen, we exalt the writer. And as the vessel, we value and pour out the treasure that's within us. So, exalting Christ means I'm willing to give up the spotlight. And one note, no photo bombing. You know what I'm saying? No photo bombing. Some of us are very willing to put Jesus in the spotlight, but we want to be in there too. We want a little peek. We're good with Jesus being the center of attention. We really are. But we want to be sure we get a piece of the pie. We want to be sure that people still see us a little bit. We still want people to recognize that we have some stuff going on too. We're not quite willing just to get out of the picture. We still want to be part of the spotlight. Truly exalting Christ says no. There's no photo bombing taking place. We're just like John the Baptist. My role and my desire is that the fame and the name of Jesus Christ spreads. My name and my fame just goes away. When that's our heart, Christ is exalted. As individuals and as a corporate body, that's why part of our mission statement for River Fellowship is to exalt Christ. Because our corporate desire is that the name and fame of Jesus Christ be spread. And our name, our fame, it's insignificant. It's unimportant. We're tools. We play a role. We're not insignificant. That's why there are churches. That's why there are the people of God. We have a role, but it's not in the spotlight. So may we be willing to be nothing more than tools in the hands of God. May we be willing to be vessels carrying the grace and the power and the love of Christ. May we be willing to receive zero applause, zero recognition. May we be willing to lay all of our plans and desires and goals and dreams at the feet of Christ for his to be fulfilled. Philippians 2.3 says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. May we do nothing that glorifies ourselves. May everything we do be to glorify him. May he be the one in the spotlight. Thanks for listening. To hear more messages or to learn more about River Fellowship in Amarillo, Texas, please visit us at rfamarillo.org. Thanks for listening. Have a great week.